Hello Knockouts, Tanya TKO here, and this is Goddess Off The Grid Official, our first podcast episode where we are strictly on a podcasting platform. This is the first one. We had a few leading up to this where I published them in video form on Facebook and YouTube, but this is our first official podcast. So let me know what you think about it here and also bear with me as we go through the ebbs and the flows of getting this thing perfected. Goddess Off The Grid is where we discuss what's on your heart and mind, where we think outside of the box. Sometimes we go off the rails and talk on it sometimes we get out of pocket too so today we're going to be talking about this amber geiger situation where the brother hugged her and said he forgave her and the judge came down hugged her too and gave her a bible and one of the bailiffs was seen playing with her here all black people and last night i i just i wasn't able to sleep well it was like I had these visions and these thoughts reverberating through my mind all night. And I tossed and turned, trying to at least get a handle on why and how something like this took place in such a renowned, precedented court case where for the first time, a black man's life has been placed up against a Caucasian female's freedom and she was charged with murder and then when she was getting ready to be sentenced that's when all of this stuff began to ensue. So I was excited about seeing that worth and value had been placed on our lives and then when I saw one after another all of these images of black people appeasing and pacifying and placating this woman the ancestors were just riled up inside and as I tried to sleep last night I just I really couldn't and so I'm bringing this out here to you to have a discussion. I want to get your sense for how all of this played out to you and I know that there are going to be some religious differences and as you know I'm calling my podcast Goddess Off The Grid and that should let you know right there that I am goddess. I feel that you are goddess as well, that we are gods and goddesses and so I can't tell you whether or not my podcast is right for you to listen to. You have to hear what it is that we're talking about and get a sense for yourself about whether or not you feel this is the direction of what it is that you're ready to talk about. So let's jump into it. For those of you who don't know, Amber Geiger is, or she was a police officer at the time that this took place. And she was on her phone sexting with a married man, sending provocative pictures and texts back and forth with a married coworker, mind you, right? So she's having an affair with this guy. She's wrapped up in, in the tawdriness of this sexting conversation and she claims she parked on the wrong floor she walked down the hallway ignored all of the differences that existed around in the hallway got to Botham John's apartment which was on a different floor than hers whose outside was different who had different numbers had a red mat etc and somehow she gained access to his apartment According to testimony, he was sitting on the sofa enjoying some ice cream when she shot him in the heart dead intentionally. 
And then there are eyewitnesses that have video footage of her out in the hallway pacing up and down. Instead of administering aid, you know, making a phone call, which did not sound like a phone call for help. Once the ambulances and help arrived, the cops got onto the scene. They turned off their body cameras. And so there's a lot of what went on that looks very similar to a cover-up. According to what it is that I've heard, she changed her story several times to try to make it make sense. So she went into this man's apartment. The furniture was different. All of the things were different. And she claims that she was so frightened for her life. According to witness testimony, there's some contradiction about whether or not the door was actually open or closed. According to people, they say that there's a fire door that just closes automatically. According to ear witnesses, they claim that what it is that she was saying she said when she opened the door was actually a lot different than what it is that she that they say that they heard her say. But that's neither here nor there. We weren't there, but we rely on the jury to hear everything that took place and then to act accordingly and to come up with a sentencing that they felt was fair and then go from there. But what I want to talk about is how when the brother of the victim got on the stand, he gave a, a passionate, emotional testimony. And so mind you, the jury was listening to his testimony. This was before they had come up with what the sentences should be. So she was found guilty of murder. So at this point, according to what it is that the jury had heard, according to the defense and the prosecution, she was found guilty of murder, of intentionally murdering this man. And remember, there were some things that were kind of fishy that changed from the, the day that this happened to after the fact when they were at trial. So nonetheless, she was found guilty of murder and now they are getting ready to decide what the sentence should, should be. And the brother gets on a stand and he's like, I hope that you don't get any jail time. I hope that, you know, you just live your life and live your best life, etc. He was emotional. And then he begged the judge to allow him to hug Amber Geiger. And he ran off of the stand and she ran to him into this tight embrace. And this is what some people are calling, you know, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of God and all this other stuff, right? So that's one. Two... During some time when things were quiet in the courtroom and Amber was sitting there, there was a black female bailiff that was playing in Amber's hair, making sure that her hair was looking good. Even though her, her blonde hair was already well coiffed, this black woman came up and decided that she would soothe her and she was playing in the woman's hair and, and just attempting to make this woman feel more comfortable. This woman charged and found guilty of murder. And then three, what I found most inappropriate was the judge. The judge came down off of her bench to also hug Amber Geiger and give Amber Geiger her personal Bible. Now, part of the reason that I feel that this is tremendously inappropriate, look, the bailiff rubbing on her hair, I personally feel is inappropriate as well. 
the brother choosing to forgive her. Look, we all have our own process of how it is that we choose to live inside of this world and what it is that we feel is going to make us be able to get to the next stage in our life better. Remember, forgiveness is for you, not for the other person. So if he chose to forgive her, you know, that's between him and whatever it is that he decides to do and however he decides to do it. But I think that there's a bigger and a broader conversation here that speaks to the Stockholm Syndrome that Black people are still living underneath inside this country, which places the value of a white person's life above our own, which pushes our pain down to the bottom and has us identify with our captor, no matter how cruel and unjust they may be. But you know what? We'll get to that in a moment. This judge and why I felt what she did was so inappropriate First of all, we have separation of church and state in this country. Why is she using her time during this trial to start handing out Bibles, her own personal Bible that she's written in, written goodness knows what, and I just, giving, oh God, giving the convicted murderer gifts, hugs, and placation in the courtroom, I just, when I saw this, I was just, I was floored. I felt like I had been, I'd been punched in the chest. It was like, here we are, all of us rallying around, you know, showing support for this case, because this is not a, this is not just about their family. First of all, Amber was able to give such a convincing, quote unquote, convincing testimony. And so many police officers before her have been able to get away with the defense of, oh, I was scared of the black man. I had no choice but to kill him. I felt fear for my life. And, you know, for the first time, for the first time, we were like, listen, that is not a good enough excuse. So she went into this situation with her own biases. And if you saw some of the text messages that were leaked, but were not included as evidence in the trial, she had biases against black people where she felt like black people did policing work differently than she did. And she was joking with her married lover about that, where he was complaining about working alongside all black cops. And she decided to come back with her jokes about, yeah, well, you know, just just discussing how she feels about black people. And so she went into that situation with a bias already embedded and implanted into her. And she used that bias, look, if you believe her testimony as given, to stop her from being able to see that the furniture was different, that the place was different, that the whole setup inside of the apartment was different, that the rug down on the bottom was different, that all of the rugs and all of the doors and door numbers on that floor were all different. She had this internal bias inside of her that allowed her to feel such fear from being in a space with a black male body that she began shooting to kill. So she murdered this man in cold blood and then she changed the story into him lunging towards her and all of this other stuff, which he would be well within his right to lunge towards her. And remember, the judge in this case, actually, when she gave it to the jury to deliberate, she decided that she was going to allow the Castle Doctrine to have precedent on this trial. 
And the castle doctrine says that a person has the right to defend even to the death their domicile. So if Amber Geiger really felt that that was her domicile, that would absolve her of culpability and give her the ability to be like, oh, well, I thought this was my domicile. I have the right to defend it to the death. But then that also would have given Botham John the right to be able to defend his space to the death. But we know that he didn't have that opportunity because she's the one that came into his abode where he was peacefully sitting there eating ice cream and her biases stopped her from being able to see that all of the furnishings and everything was different. All she saw was a black male body and decided to shoot to kill. So we have a convicted murderer there, the judge giving her Bibles, the bailiff rubbing on her hair, and the brother hugging and comforting her. And it reminds me of the Charleston, remember the Charleston Nine where that guy went inside of the church and killed those nine people? And then the judge started prompting how this was a good opportunity for the, God, you know, this is just so frustrating. I'm sorry, this is so frustrating. We can keep it real for a moment, right? We can do, we can keep it real here, right? So the judge in that case decided that he was gonna use his time on the bully pulpit to start telling the family members that now would be a good time to say that they forgive. And, and it's like, it's so, so convenient when it's black people, when it's the black person that has been harmed or wronged. It's also convenient for people to start pushing, oh, this forgiveness, oh, this, that. When people are still upset with OJ, even though OJ was found innocent, people are still upset with OJ, saying that he did it, finding any way that they could to try to get that man behind bars until finally they were able to. But even though he was found innocent, there are people who are still angry at, oh, where's the forgiveness there? Where's the forgiveness there? For some strange reason, Black people don't have the ability to be human beings. It's like for some reason, people expect for us to be on the, the highest pinnacle. Black people can't get upset. We can't get frustrated. We can't lose our temper. We can't not be the pristine, shining example of composure, forgiveness, and the higher road, no matter what. And it doesn't even matter what's happening to us. There could be a police officer bashing your head in and you're not supposed to even flinch. You're just supposed to take the pummeling, do everything perfectly, never have any sudden movements, never raise your voice, never get upset, never have a knee-jerk reaction. I mean, if somebody grabs you and gifts you up, of course, you're going to have a reaction. Your first reaction is going to be to defend yourself. However, we look at the, 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 the tapings and the, the footage of black people to make sure that they have done everything in the same way that the most Zen of gurus would have done it to be more Christian and more Christ-like than the murderers, killers, and rapists who gave us that religion, who, excuse me, who forced that religion onto us. So we have to be the most Christ-like Christ, the most Buddha is Buddha, and the Zenist of all Zenies, and sit there getting bashed and pummeled, yiffed up, kicked, smashed, thrown around, spat on, assaulted in any number of ways. 
and we must hold all of our composure, never raise our voice, never curse. And now taking it to the extra level, we're now in the face of a person murdering your loved one in cold blood. For what reason? I do not know. Who knows why she decided to do this? Who knows? If we look at this from the outside, why would a person who doesn't know a person decide to bust into the apartment and then murder them? Who knows what type of sick, twisted? There are a lot of people who have all different types of proclivities going on inside of their hearts where they have these psychotic inclinations, where they decide that they want to see what XYZ is like or what they can get away with. Who knows? Who knows? But she burst into this man's apartment, murdered him in cold blood, participated in a cover-up, changed her story, fabricated some other stuff, and was still found guilty. And then on top of all of that, the black people are supposed to be the ones who are supposed to take the higher road and be like, oh, my dear, let us forgive you. And look, forgiveness is cool. But why does it always have to be the forgiveness going one way in this imbalanced dynamic? When I saw that bailiff rubbing on her hair, it just, it reminded me of Gone with the Wind. When everyone was gathered round Missy, and they were fussing and fixing up her clothes, when little Miss Missy was talking about, I will get back into my 18-inch waist. 18 and a half inches, that's all I remember from that scene. And everybody was fussing around to make sure that Miss Missy looked as good as Miss Missy could look. And then even when the Civil War happened, oh, they didn't want to leave the plantation, no. But instead, they started working on helping Miss Missy look as good as she can look. Remember, she pulled down the curtains and she said, with God as my witness, I will never go hungry again. And the benevolent Negro, always in smiles, always selfless, always giving of him and herself for the comfort and placation of the white folks around him and her. So much so that there were people who were convinced that black people loved slavery, that it was the benevolent master that came and saved the savages from his savage ways, saved them from that, 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 that dark land, brought him over into civilization, gave him religion and language, and gave him the ability to learn a craft, be housed and clothed with the master's goodness. But along with that came the indoctrination into a religion, a religion that purports this always turning the other cheek when you Zanagra, but somehow having, having might and damnation when you're the massa. That their interpretation of Christianity brings the Ku Klux Klan. And your interpretation of Christianity has you in the courtroom hugging a convicted murderer, saying, I wish that you get no time and I wish that you could just go off with your life. How much longer? 
How much longer are we going to be like, go forth, go yonder and live. You are absolved. How much longer? It's like it's embedded in our DNA to value Caucasian comfort above our own. And you best believe if it is in our DNA to have that embedded, then on the flip side, it may be embedded in their DNA to feel owed the bounty of the privilege that comes along with their imposed supremacy. I read this study once which talked about these Caucasian kids who had been given a known advantage on this exam. And in the face of knowing that they had been given this advantage, instead of being like, oh, well, you know, I didn't deserve this, they felt that by virtue of their DNA or some specialness that was bestowed upon them, that that was the reason that they deserved that advantage and they took it with no ifs, ands, or buts, no qualms. And when we talk about the Stockholm Syndrome, the Stockholm Syndrome is a survival technique where in order to stay alive, the actual neural pathways of your brain actually shift. Because at the end of the day, the brain, the body, their job is to keep the human alive. And if you there angry and, and, and poisoning yourself with, with dis-ease and, and you feeling all of these negative hormones going all throughout you, you're not going to last inside that situation. So the pathways of your brain actually change to have you identify with your captor, where you actually start to act against your own best interest in order to be able to stay in a situation to stay alive. And on the flip side, if you can imagine that there are people who have the Stockholm syndrome, that there must be some other syndrome that exists on the other side where the person actually feels justified in keeping the people captive. There was this Facebook post that went viral. I'm not sure if you saw it, but it was trying to explain racism and societal racism. There were all different races there with all different types of backgrounds. And the person was like, listen, the first person to get to me gets this $100 bill. He came up with a bunch of different things. Like if you were raised in a one parent household, take a step back. If you have had to come to school hungry or cold, or if he just came up with a whole bunch of different scenarios. And there were people who were able to take step forward because of things that exist in a privileged lifestyle that don't exist in a non-privileged lifestyle. And when all was said and done, there were some people that were closer to him and there were some people that were further behind, right? And it was so crazy because he was like, after he'd said all of these different things, if your name has ever stopped you from getting a job, all, all of these different things, you'd have to see the video because I can't think of what the, all of this stuff off the top of my head. But there were some people that were closer to him and some people that were further behind. And when he was like, okay, now run. Oh my gracious. There were people who were way far in the back who just had tremendous running ability and they were so fast, like they were dusting people who were ahead of them. However, when all was said and done, the people who had the advantage were, one of those people was able to win. They were able to win and they were happy about that $100. They didn't give a damn about what was fair or not fair. 
or none of that just like with the advantage on the test they're like oh well shouldn't have been born like xyz oh well i can't help it but without any conscience about what really got them to where it is that they are and there were a lot of people who saw this and they felt something and there were other people who saw it and they were like oh well shrugs jane elliott does a really good job of showcasing privilege and i i think that some of her experiments are some of the best that I've ever seen. She's such a treasure to us here on this earth, but let's go forward. So just like in Stockholm Syndrome, we're on the one end, there's the person that loves their captor. I can imagine that on the other end, there exists some type of psychosis where the person feels justified in their keeping the person captive or doing this to that person. There's this thing called trauma bonding, which is very close to Stockholm Syndrome, where the two people feed off of one another in this traumatic up and down situation. There are some people out there who are really, really sick. I remember I was watching this documentary. So this was a documentary about psychopaths who hurt children. And there was this one psychopath. There was just something that was going on in his mind that just was not connecting one and one to equal two. Like he said that he would hear this child screaming out in pain. And there was some psychosis that was going on inside of him that'd be like, oh, he's not really in pain. He really likes it. He really enjoys it. And he convinced himself, because I guess on the one hand, where people want to survive so they don't see their captor as a monster, they see their captor as somebody lovable. There are people who don't want to see themselves as monsters. And so they, they justify and they come up with all types of excuses on the inside for why something is just. Black people in this country are in an abusive relationship with their government. We're in an abusive relationship with this country where dysfunctional things are commonplace and then our counterparts really absolve themselves of the culpability or the responsibility of really doing anything about it because there's something in their mind that makes them think, oh, well, these people must like this. Or they get hypnotized and programmed into thinking, oh, well, this is why this is happening to those people. Like I remember when I first came to Los Angeles for the very first time, that's when I realized that racism is so embedded in the fabric of our society that racist policies and racist behaviors are just commonplace. Like I first realized that when I was looking for an apartment in Los Angeles. And I traveled from New York all the way to LA. And it was stunning to me that from coast to coast, all of these ghettos are just filled with black people. All of these, the downtrodden surroundings, all of the filth and, and all of this stuff. And it made me wonder, okay, is there something inherently wrong and defunct about black people? Is there and because I'm black I know that that is not the case if you give a child opportunities if you provide a safe space if you provide resources for a child they're able to do amazing things however the fact that we're sitting here like this is normal the fact that black people and brown people are overrepresented in impoverished areas, so much so that being poor and being black are almost synonymous. 
And the fact that we as a country are okay with this, that we just take this as, as normalcy without really wanting to dive in and seeing what is going wrong? What is happening in, in this country and in so many other countries across the world that black people are relegated to this permanent underclass and that you have to scrape, fight and scrimp to try to get out of that situation and that far enough are not able to escape the claws of poverty. But we use those exceptions as the rules. Oh, XYZ did it. Why can't you? So I'm going to give you the four main issues that come from this display that we saw in this courtroom. Right now I'm in Southern California and I'm right outside an area in the desert where they're getting ready to have a rodeo. So you may hear a lot of trucks pulling up in the background. I've been trying to pause it to, when the trucks get really noisy, but that's what's going on in case you hear that. But I'm gonna wrap up this video with giving you four of the main issues that are indicative in that display that we saw inside of the courtroom. So number one is the Stockholm Syndrome and trauma bonding that we talked about earlier. Number two was this whole idea of the good Christian, where one person tries to outdo the other person and see who is more Christ-like and who is more forgiving. The issue that I see with that is that it flows one way. Like we talked about earlier, when we have a certain group of people band together to, to come up with their Christian ideals, they come up with things like the Ku Klux Klan. But then when another group of people bands together to come up with their Christian ideals, we have these people absolving and forgiving the people who misinterpreted the Christian ideals in the first place without ever really holding them accountable or holding them to task for that misinterpretation so that they can take the time to really look at themselves and see how they misinterpret. And it's like, you know, I hear a lot of people, it's like this kind of competition going on like, oh, well, this is more Christ-like, et cetera, et cetera. But even Christ himself, when he was being persecuted by the Romans and he was on the cross, Christ himself, didn't forgive the Romans. He looked up to the sky and he asked his father to forgive them. He said, forgive them, father, for they know not what they do. And he asked his father to bestow the forgiveness down on them as Christ was there dying for our quote unquote sins or for people who believe in that, dying for, for, for their sins in that way. And the issue with that is that we are doling out all of this forgiveness without any expectation of changed behavior. And so we come up to number three, where we absolve the aggressor of the culpability and responsibility to make a change. So we are just, first of all, we're just doling out all of this forgiveness and, oh, you go off and, and live your great life. And, and meanwhile, they never take a chance to really look at their aggression. They never take a chance to course correct, to look at themselves, to self-examine and figure out what can I do? It's not like these people are like, oh, I have changed my ways. Let me get down on my knees and put my face to your foot, kissing your toes and begging you to forgive me. No, you're forgiving your aggressor. And the great, the, the craziest part about that is that this type of stuff is interpreted from some people's interpretation of the Bible. Oh, you turn your cheek seven times to get slapped. And then once they slap you seven times, or you turn it seven more times. And then other people interpret that in a different way. 
where the Muslims say, look, if you slap me in XYZ type of way, I have the right in the exact same type of way with XYZ type of force and angle and all of that to be able to slap you back. And I think that's why a lot of people had fear from Malcolm X as opposed to Martin Luther King, where Martin Luther King said, oh, well, we will bow our heads and no matter how hard you crack us in our heads, we are going to show you the error of your ways. As an outsider looking in, I can say that yes, there are a certain group of people that seem to be much more benevolent and much more Christ-like than another group of people. However, if you're allowing yourself to be abused, if you're allowing yourself to get hurt and harmed, how kind are you being to yourself? How loving are you being to yourself when you're allowing yourself to get harmed without one, stopping your harm? or two, holding the person harming you accountable. And there's a part of me that thinks that it's by design that these doctrines are pushed onto a people where the people who are pushing those doctrines onto them, they themselves don't even follow those doctrines. So that this doctrine is used to keep you docile and compliant, worshiping your master. Meanwhile, your master is not behaving as Christ would behave and nobody is holding them to task. All they're doing is saying, oh, I forgive you, I forgive you as you just continue to get cracked over the head. So number four, the number four issue that I see with this situation is that it diminishes our worth as a whole. It's like they don't feel our pain to the same extent that you would think that a person would feel that pain themselves. It's like you're not even human. You know how you click around on the net and then you end up on some side of the web and you don't know how you got there? Well, last night I was clicking around on the web and I came upon these animal pages where there were animals that were hunting and there were all types of lions and cheetahs that were hunting the warthog. And so they would go into the little warthog holes and they would pull out little baby warthogs. They would, it was, it was, it was, it was just, it was crazy. And the way that these warthogs would scream, it was the wail, they would wail. The way that you would hear them screaming, it, you, it's like you would, there's a part of you that has to feel some sort of sympathy for them. But then at the end of the day, you watch these videos and you're like, well, you know, that's the cycle of life. Because at the end of the day, that warthog is another animal's food. And it's really nothing that we can do because that is the cycle of life. So it's hollering and I feel terrible for a moment, but then I'm like, you know what? It's food. And these animals have to survive by feasting on other animals. It's the way that the, the kingdom was designed. And it's like sometimes I feel like that's how other people feel about Black people's pain. Like you see this mother crying on the news and it doesn't even occur to you that this is a woman crying about her child. Tamir Rice was 12 years old when he was gunned down by police in an open carry state. We're carrying a toy gun. No stop, no freeze, no put your hands up, nothing. The police came, saw a brown-skinned male with a toy gun and slaughtered him at the playground. And that mother had to bury her 12-year-old child. That was someone's son. Someone carried that human being inside of their body for nine months. For nine months. 
and then had all of these hopes and dreams for this child and then one day he was slaughtered on a playground by police officers who were acquitted i don't even know if they indicted them but nothing came of it in an open carry state and it's like you see these mothers time and time again on the news wailing wailing and it reminds me of that song johnny was by bob marley if you don't know the song look it up you got to get up on your roots rock reggae where he went <clears throat> man hold her head and cry cause her son had been shot down in the street and died from a stray bullet Woman hold her head and cry explaining to her was a passerby who saw the woman cry wondering how can she work wondering wondering how can she work it out now she knows that the wages of sin is death. Give Jaja his life. She cried. Oh, she cried. Oh, um. Oh, I know Johnny was a good man. Mm. Oh, I know. Johnny was a good, 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 good. <laughs> Does anybody feel their pain? And I think that there are people ha who have, and I think that there are people who have become cold to black pain. They've become stiffened, that they have more empathy for the pain of a dog in the street than a black person so much so that there are people who got a longer sentence for killing a dog than amber geiger got for killing a human being there are black people right now serving longer jail sentences for non-violent crimes possession of marijuana than amber geiger got for taking a human being off of this earth when we do things like forgiving without any expectation of changed behavior when we say things like oh it's all right you murdered my loved one it's okay i i hope you have a prosperous life go forth and prosper i hope you don't get jail time it really reinforces that our pain is not as painful as other people's pain that our lives are not worth as much, that our tears are not as salty as another person's tears. There have been many experiments that have been conducted on black people without anesthesia, without any type of pain alleviation, as they hollered there on the table, having open hysterectomies performed on them because they felt like we were beasts who did not feel pain the way that they felt pain. 
And even to this day, part of the reason that the opioid epidemic is crushing white America and not black America is because black people would go to the hospital in pain and they would not be given pain medication. Go look this up. They wouldn't be given pain medication. They'd be given lower forms of pain medication because they just don't believe that we have pain, that our pain is as painful as we say that it is. And as long as we continue to do stuff like this, we continue to reinforce that our lives are not worth as much as another person's life. When compared to the lily whiteness of Missy and Massa, that their lives are worth more, that their comfort is worth more. And then there seems to be this extra added incentive of showing who could be the goodest Negro that they can be by showing how benevolent they can be to Massa and Missy. Because I can imagine if that were a black woman or a black man on the stand, if the races were reversed, first of all, we already know if the races were reversed, that the Caucasian family is not going to sit up there hugging the, the black male murderer, being like, I forgive you, I forgive you, I hope you don't get no jail time. We know that that's not going to happen. But let's say even if they were the same race, well, we know that if it was white on white, I can imagine you wouldn't see that in the courtroom either. That they would be like, I hope you don't get any jail time. But what if it was a black person who had opened up his door and shot him in cold blood? Would they be so outward with their forgiveness to another black person? But it's like when come to the face with white female fragility, with the preciousness of whiteness, they're like, oh, I must show them that I, f I forgive you, Missy. I forgive you, Missy. Oh, goodness. And you know what? On that note, I'm going to get out of here. I would love to hear your thoughts. But you know what? I don't even know if on these podcasting sites, if there's the ability to leave your feedback or whether or not you just listen. Well, I'm going to figure, I guess we'll figure that out once this gets up. I don't know. It's like black mothers standing here crying over their children and the world doesn't really feel their pain. And we so quick to give up our forgiveness that it makes it seem like we don't really have pain, which just perpetuates this cycle. It's like we're so docile and so submissive in this country. Oh, gosh. I would say more, but this is our first podcast, so I'll go in in another one. On that note, Goddess Off the Grid is signing out. Go out there and love one another, but most importantly, love yourself. And part of loving yourself is giving yourself the okay. Your pain matters. It matters. Don't rush yourself to forgiveness because of some expectation other people have of you that they themselves aren't even living up to. And on that note, I'll talk to you later. Tanya TKO. Peace.